I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, an expedition to one of the last unvisited places on Earth, and the crumbling sheet of ice the size of Florida that's melting so fast it's known as the Doomsday Glacier. It took us a month to get there. So we crossed the Drake's Passage, the wildest seas in the world. We had like 25 foot swell. Lots of people got really sick. And then we started to nose into the sea ice that surrounds Antarctica. And then the conundrum of having kids in the era of climate change. There's really interesting sort of thought ruts around how to analyze this intersection between regeneration and climate change. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized that the way I had been taught to think about reproduction and climate change is misleading. An odyssey to Antarctica and reflections on motherhood and a rapidly warming world. That's coming up on Life Examined. There's no more remote place on our planet than the southern continent of Antarctica. 40% larger than Europe, the Antarctic is a vast polar desert, almost entirely covered by ice, and is home to no native human population. Stories and legends surround the many explorers who sail to the southernmost tip of the Earth, some never to return, while others like Shackleton, Admondson, and Cook endured harsh and inhospitable conditions and paved the way for others to follow. Today, the ice-packed landscape of Antarctica is once again ground zero for expeditions. Rising sea levels and extreme weather patterns have drawn scientists from across the globe. So when the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity arose to travel to the massive and rapidly collapsing Thwaites Glacier, writer Elizabeth Rush was all on board. And as you'll hear in a moment, her epic expedition didn't just enlighten her about the vulnerability of the planet— but also made her question whether or not it was morally responsible to bring more children into it. Elizabeth Rush is a Pulitzer Prize finalist and author most recently of The Quickening, Creation and Community at the Ends of the Earth. She's also an assistant professor in the nonfiction writing program at Brown University. Elizabeth Rush, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks for having me. I I really want to hear about this incredible voyage and what took you to one of the most remote parts of the world. Um, Talk to me about where, where this voyage came from and why you went. Yeah, so in 2019, I was invited to participate in a mission um, to the calving edge of Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica. And this mission, it's a scientific mission. So we set out in a government-run icebreaker from Punta Arenas, Chile. And we were headed to this place on the planet that literally no one had ever been to before us. Mm. It's the place where Thwaites discharges ice into the sea. And as a point of reference, a lot of people might have heard of Thwaites, um, by its kind of catchy, horrible nickname, the Doomsday Glacier. Huh, okay. Uh, that's because the weights is humongous. It's the size of Florida. It contains enough ice to raise global sea levels two feet. Wow. And it also acts as a kind of cork to the West Antarctic ice shelf, which if we lose all that ice could raise global sea levels 10 feet or more. Oh my gosh. So what what was it like to be there? I mean, paint paint a picture of just what that scenery looks like. To put it, I want to, I feel compelled to put it in context and yeah. just say, first off, it took us a month to get there. Wow. So yeah. um, we crossed the Drake's Passage, which is like the wildest seas in the world. And our crossing was eventful. We had like 25 foot swell. Lots of people got really sick. Um, 
And then we, you know, started to nose into the sea ice that surrounds Antarctica. So we spent days breaking through ice. Um, for an icebreaker, that means that essentially your ship rides up on top of an ice floe and forces it to crack from the weight of the boat itself. Mm. Um, so it, it was a journey just to get to the weights. Yeah. And then uh, we arrived and I had never seen anything like it before in my entire life. I remember walking up to the bridge where the captain cheers on the steers on the morning of our arrival. And the only thing I could think of as a metaphoric likeness was the wall in Game of Thrones. Uh, <laughs> so uh -huh, it's like, yeah. I think it kind of looks like the wall in uh -huh. Game of Thrones. It was really this, this massive, you know, in some places, incredibly sheer sort of ice wall that our ship ran alongside. And, and we're talking like, I don't know, 100, 120 feet high. But if you have that much ice floating above the surface of the water, you have six, seven, eight times that amount of ice below. So mm. we're really scooting alongside a wall of ice that's, you know, almost a thousand feet high. Yeah. And it was just stunning. In some places it looked, you know, slumped or like dunes or much softer. Um and yeah, we I was just sort of in awe being there. It was incredible. I mean, and I'd imagine that that just like the color palette is so incredibly different than what we would see day to day. And maybe in some levels very uniform or I mean, just just visually it must have just been kind of unearthly what you were witnessing. You know, there's a there's a phenomenon that happens to folks returning from the poles where um, actual color just kind of like shocks the eye. So for I was there for almost two months and the entire color color palette was for the most part whites, blues, grays. And because you get so used to those colors, you can start to see a bunch of variations mm. inside of them. So I think I became a much keener observer of um, the different, you know, cobalts and turquoise and uh, seal fur blue, uh, the more time I spent in the ice. Mm. And then I came back and was like, oh my gosh, greens, you know, it just, it literally sort of put me in a kind of like visual overload when I got home. Yeah. And I mean, the, the way you describe this to me makes me think of the great, you know, voyages to the North or South Poles, you know, Shackleton's voyages or things like that. And I mean, to spend a month on a boat is a long time on a boat. For some people that could either be their heaven or for many, their nightmare. And I, like, what what is it like to just travel to a place to be in such confined quarters to be in such a remote place like how did how did you find that kind of working within you and your kind of day-to-day -day experience of just being alive there i went to this really incredible part of antarctica and when i was there i actually really never got off the boat so we worked alongside the weights mm. But our lives were primarily contained inside of this icebreaker that was the length of a football field. So wow. you could cross it from end to end in a minute. Um, I thought that I was going to, as an introvert, I thought I was going to get really tired of constantly being around people. But what happened in those kinds of close quarters is that the people on board really become almost like your family. Mm. 
And if you're not being your authentic self, you're just going to exhaust yourself. So you kind of realize that quickly. And that meant that like, I found places and ways to get time alone. It meant that, um, you know, I wasn't ever trying to convince anybody to take me seriously or, uh, you know, perceive me in a certain way. I just kind of had to show up and be myself. And that was actually really fun. It was like the first time in a really long time, or maybe as an adult that I've felt anything like that at some level, it kind of felt like summer camp. Like here we are. (laughs) (laughs) No, I hear that. And this, this place you went to in Antarctica in many ways says a lot about where the world is in terms of climate change and what is happening to the oceans. Can you talk about just the importance of that place and and what it's trying to communicate to us? You know, Antarctica is really far away and so far away that most people don't think about Antarctica on a daily basis. But the more you learn about ocean circulation patterns or sea level rise, the more you realize that here and there are not separate at all from one another. And so um, I remember something that the chief scientist said on board to me. He said, you know, if you step outside of the last 6,000 years of human history, you realize that three feet of sea level rise a century is pretty average. It's not the exception to the norm, it's closer to the norm. And there's obviously going to be fluctuations in that number. But, you know, we think of sea level rise, three feet of sea level rise this century as being extraordinary. And he's like, you know, the reason we think it's extraordinary is because Antarctica's great glaciers really have been kind of holding steady through the bulk of the rise of human civilization. Mm. And that steadiness actually gives shape to the kinds of coastal communities that we're used to right now, coastal communities that can be oriented, you know, within just a couple feet of high tide. If Antarctic, if we were in a different moment in geologic history and Antarctica's great glaciers were losing mass much more quickly, then we might not have the kind of like blind faith in coastal stability that we've had, Mm. if that makes sense. Um, You know, the pulse of, cold water coming out of uh, Antarctica really shapes and drives ocean circulation patterns the world over. And those patterns give us our day-to-day weather. Um, So in many ways, Antarctica seems so far away, but it really defines us uh, by default. Mm. Do glaciers reform? Like, do they ever, because I have, all I hear about is them shrinking and the devastation of them shrinking. I mean, is it is it a fluid system up there? What? How do, how do we understand what that ice is doing? There's so much of it. Yeah, so you asked a great question, do glaciers reform? And there's kind of two ways that we can think about that question. And one, you I think something fundamental that you need to know about how the glaciers of Antarctica work is that all glaciers are really frozen rivers of ice and they're they're rivers in that the water they contain is always moving downhill kind of in gravity driven motion and so antarctica's glaciers are rivers of ice that naturally are going to discharge some of that ice into the ocean the river's going to 
you know, reach its outlet. And they're replenished by snow falling on the center of the continent. And that, that snow slowly works its way towards the sea. So glaciers are always um, getting snow falling on them. That snow condenses, kind of becomes glacial ice, and then moves towards the ocean. What's happening right now is that we're losing more ice out of the outlets of these glaciers than they're gaining in mass through precipitation events. So mm. the rate of loss is outpacing the, the rate of accumulation. And that's something, that shift, and seeing that shift happen in almost all of the world's glaciers simultaneously, that's what um, where we see our human impact on these glaciers. So it's not weird that they calve icebergs into the ocean it's the rate at which they're calving them into the ocean and that rate is accelerating yeah um the other thing that's really important to know is like yeah we glaciers on like a geologic time frame uh retreat and expand right we know that most of north america was covered in glaciers at one point in time during the last glacial maximum uh, about twenty thousand years ago and the world's glaciers have been in retreat since then so uh, there's also this kind of larger time scale in which glaciers form and retreat and form and retreat. Yes. And how much of, let's say, the retreat or the shrinking were you able to see up there? I mean, was that something that was very obvious? Talk to me about just, you know, what, what, was, what was making its way to you in terms of what you were able to experience? Well, I should say, like, I went on this mission really... Ah, uh, bizarrely wanting to see the glacier in retreat. Yeah. I had spent so, I'd spent years listening to um, the voices of people in frontline climate changed communities talk about how rising tides and higher, stronger storms were changing their lives. And I wanted to kind of like see the source of that up close. So that's, that's why I applied to be on the mission in the first place. And... I also, and I know we'll talk about this, I think we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I should also say, you know, I wanted to see this glacier in retreat. And at the same time, I also very much wanted to bring a child into the world. And part of this book is about kind of holding those two impulses alongside one another. Um, so we get to Thwaites and we do, uh, we're able to conduct some, you know, a week of science that is unprecedented in human history. We're gathering information on how warm the water is that's circulating beneath the ice and, and lots of different important questions to contemporary climate modeling. And after like six days of being there, I can still remember going up to the top deck one morning and it was really cold and I looked out and there were all of these icebergs in the bay that we had been working in. And I remember taking tons of photographs of them, just being like, wow, this is so beautiful. I was really like, it was just the most gorgeous mo morning. And it had been gray and kind of gloaming and overcast for days and days and days. And then here's this beautiful morning. Um, and I went then down into the belly of the boat and started transcribing interviews and doing my work. 
And around midday, the chief scientist comes into the computer lab and he's sort of compulsively clicking back and forth between two aerial satellite images of our study area where we've been working. And the first one was taken sort of on the day we arrive and in it, the weights, the glacier kind of is the solid thing and, and it looks like a sturdy rampart sort of along the southern boundary of this bay. And in the second image, it looks like a teenager took a baseball bat to a windshield and shattered that ice, um, a chunk of that ice, like 25 miles wide and 15 miles deep into hundreds of pieces. And that was taken on the morning that, you know, the morning of the day that we're in, the morning where I had seen all these icebergs in the bay. And I see the chief scientist clicking back and forth between them and I go over to him and I kind of ask him to tell me what he's seeing. And he was like, you know, this could be like, we could be sailing through the middle of one of the largest examples of recorded ice shelf collapse that we have. And when I heard that, I totally like ran back up to the top deck and was like, you know, this is why we're here to see this event up close. And what shocked me was how still it appeared, how beautiful it appeared, how without any previous experience in that part of the world, I couldn't actually see the extraordinariness of what was happening right in front of me. It just registered to me, it still registered to me as icebergs in the bay. Um, and that... You know, I stood up there for hours trying to really witness what was happening all around me. And some part of me had to recognize that I was having a really hard time seeing it. And I think in some ways that's a very familiar sensation for folks. Like we know climate change is happening all around us. But our human body barometers are not particularly well-tuned in this moment in our history uh, to perceive that change. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I thought it was going to be more dramatic looking at it up close, but it was actually very cloying and very difficult to see. Mm. I, I mean, I think you bring up something that's that's so important in the way that we understand these climate change stories. It's like, even today I look outside and it's just a beautiful winter day. You know, it's sunny out. I don't, I don't see any sign of anything being off. I don't see any sign of environmental destruction. And I, I I'm amazed at how quickly humans can just snap back into the present and think everything is fine if we don't have immediate evidence in front of us. Right. I mean, that seems to be kind of the gist of what I'm hearing from you as well. Totally, totally. And it's, I'm 39. I grew up in New England. I never felt terribly like at home in New England as a youngster. And so uh, at 18, I left and studied in Oregon. And then I went and lived in Vietnam. And I've lived in Columbia and New York City. I've, I've lived all over the world. And now by chance, my job has brought me back to New England. And, and for a long time, I was sort of like grumbly about that. But one thing that feels really profound to me is that when it's 60 degrees in January, my body having grown up here tells me this is strange. Mm. You know, this is out of the script. 
Uh, I can remember winters where I would have snow up to my eyeballs in January. And now in Rhode Island, we're lucky if we get, you know, a single storm with a foot. So there's some part of me that's like, yeah, we're not, we're not terribly good at perceiving it. And um, one of the things that feels important to being perhaps better attuned to it is to live a life in a place or, you know, have a close connection to one location. And yet our contemporary lives don't always, you know, accommodate that. Like I said, it's chance that my job brought me back here. I could just as well be in Kentucky or California. Um, So yeah, it, it is hard for us to see and the way we live also in front of screens all the time. Like, There's studies that show, you know, if you spend most of your day looking at something that's 16 inches away from your face, your eyes actually lose the ability to see, you know, movement in the branches of a tree that's 100 yards away from your face. So we're literally losing our ability to see some of these changes. Yeah. My guest this hour is author Elizabeth Rush, and we'll be back with part two of our conversation after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. In the first half of the conversation, we heard Elizabeth Rush describe her two-month trip to the Antarctic. But as you'll hear Rush explain, her decision to go also collided with her wish to have a child. When so much of her work focused on a planet under threat, the dilemma to become a mother weighed heavily upon her. Let's dive back in. And I want to go back to that that image that you just gave us that I think is so poignant, which is you know looking at these glaciers and seeing seeing them from from above. You right, you're seeing what's exposed in front of you, but knowing that kind of below the surface, below the water, there could be a tremendous amount of change. And I mean, this is where I begin to think so much about the other component of this book, which is your desire and your questions around having a child, right? Which is something that happens kind of internally below the surface as well. And I I wonder if you can now kind of bring us into that aspect of what you were thinking about and how you began to see the interplay between what was happening in Antarctica and what you perhaps wanted to happen within you. Ooh, like that's a meaty question and I'm going to try not to take too long answering it. Um, I would say, you know, as an environmentalist, I've been writing and working on the environment for over a decade. And um, I, I wanted to have, I've wanted to have a child for most of that time. And I've always felt a little conflicted about that. Um, You know, thinking about both what will my potential child, what will their impact on future climate be? And then what will the future climate's impact on them be? Um, And like I said, I was really interested in sea level rise and getting to see this glacier firsthand. When I did get accepted to the mission, I had to go through a kind of exhaustive process called physical qualification or PQing. And so I got like 40 pages of paperwork that wanted to know everything from my like general emotional status to whether or not I had hemorrhoids. I had to get an EKG. Mm. Um, and there was one line that said pelvic exam and, and I had to, I had to essentially prove that I wasn't pregnant, um, in order to deploy on this mission. And so 
you know, at some level it meant, okay, I'm going to have to carry my desire to get pregnant with me on board the boat. And as I was researching Antarctica, I realized that the first person to see it had seen it 200 years ago. And so all the first person narratives we have about the ice have been written in the last two centuries. And they're almost all written by white men from the global north. Mm. And so they have a certain kind of like narrative of conquest built into most of them. And I knew I obviously like, I knew I didn't want to replay those tropes. And as I was attentive to this, this other thing that I wanted, the idea that I wanted to become a mother, um, as I approached Antarctica, some part of me was like, oh, well, what if I keep that in the book? Like, what if I don't think of that as separate? It seemed completely anathema to how Antarctica had been written about in the past. And so I decided to uh, try to write about both in this book and see, you know, whether or not I would experience the ice differently because of the desires I carried towards it. Mm. Go on from there, because <laughs> I, I feel like we're just getting now to, to really the, the heart of this. So, I mean, what, how, how do you think the kind of the female psyche, in particular one that, that wants to be a mother, sees things differently or asks different questions about the environment, you know, that she's, she's come upon? Let's put it this way. I remember asking the chief scientist on board, who was probably in his early 60s, I was like, you've been on missions that, you know, at the beginning of your career were all men because the U.S. Navy, like, ran the U.S. Antarctic program. Um, it was actually really hard for women to become involved in government-sponsored scientific work until pretty recently. I asked him, I was like, you know, do you notice any perceivable differences either in the questions or how the science gets done now that women are active participants in it? And he was like, you know, there was a bit, there was noticeably more um, competition amongst the scientists on board um, when it was just uh, dudes. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and he was like, you know, you go to these remote places and there's a limited amount of time you have to work. In our case, I think we had 37 science days. And you have a bunch of different teams on board that need different data. Um, and so they're all kind of vying for the same amount of time. And and this man was like, you know, it used to be that it was really a fight, like who got the most time? How are you going to guarantee your time? And he was like, I think we've moved towards greater collaboration. And I think some of remedying the gender imbalance has played a, a role in that. Um, so there's some part of me that just wants to say, you know, the the impetus towards collaboration as opposed to competition um, shifts a little bit as you get closer to gender parity mm. um, in these extreme environments. And I think that's both, you know, I think that's probably uh, nurture first, nature second. But as a storyteller, I found myself really interested in decentering my experiences. So a lot of the classic explorator stories kind of tell the story of one exceptional human being sallying forth and 
overcoming the odds or dying trying. And I was like, oh, I really don't want to replay um, that kind of narrative uh, trope. So I did 213 interviews while I was on the boat mm. with all my ship, like all different walks of life on board the ship from the cooks in the kitchen to the chief scientist to the folks who were whose responsibility it was to get us you know onto floating ice flows to tag elephant seals um to the able-bodied sailors who almost all came from the philippines like i interviewed all different all different members of the crew regularly and then i transcribed all those interviews because i wanted to have my shipmates speak in their own voices about their experiences so the book ultimately is like 50 percent in my first person and then 50 percent it looks kind of like a screenplay and you hear from my shipmates and so i actually tried to make the book mirror the kind of deep collaboration i saw yeah taking place on board yeah um and that felt really exciting to me as a writer like oh how can i craft a different kind of story around antarctica I'll make sure I'm not the only one who's telling it. Yes, yeah. No, I that that is really interesting. And 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 I want to keep though staying with this larger question that I know this book is probing, which is what happens when someone like yourself is knows that they're, you know, witnessing or that at least it's happening around them climate change here and also contemplating bringing another body into the world. So, somebody that will only likely accelerate climate change, that will put more carbon into the world, that will be another mouth to feed in an overpopulating world. Talk to me about that question that you're having with yourself and that dialogue. Well, I mean, my first instinct is to just say, like, yes, my the world that my child will be born into, like, they will be a tax on that world. But I also want to immediately kind of throw up a roadblock to some of that logic. A lot of the times when we calculate, like, what's the carbon footprint of one more child on the planet? Um, we, in the math around the amount of CO2 that they're going to uh, shoot up into the atmosphere during their lifetime, we use numbers that reflect the amount how CO2 heavy our current um, society is. And I find that really perverse because it kind of bakes into our thinking the idea that our future children will consume the same amount of fossil fuels that we will. Hmm. Um, I would just say absolutely not. We're already in a transition away from fossil fuels. And so I think it's much more realistic to imagine that person's CO2 consumption to be tapering downward and ideally tapering downward towards zero within their lifetime. So, um, you know, there's really interesting sort of thought ruts that we have around um, how to analyze this intersection between regeneration and climate change. And many of them have been sort of either firsthand or secondhand taught to us by the logic of carbon, uh, carbon footprints and carbon footprint calculators. As I was researching this book, I found out, thanks to an amazing essay by a colleague, me and Chris, um, is it still okay to have a child? I found out that BP, British Petroleum, 
is really responsible for popularizing the carbon footprint as a concept. So mm -hmm. in 2005, they pump hundreds of millions of dollars into an ad campaign that is about educating consumers on what a carbon footprint is and how they can lessen their own. Um, and that, that term, you know, after 2005 just explodes in our popular lexicon. And what that means is that we start to think about the most meaningful way that an individual can impact future climate is by shifting their individual consumer choices. Like, should I be a vegan? Should I get a Prius? Let's put it in this carbon footprint calculator and decide, like, what's my intervention on the climate going to be? Things that they don't put in those carbon footprint calculators is like how much CO2 you could keep in the ground if you got together with 10 friends and shut down the local coal power plant for a day. Turns out it's the same amount that you would keep in the ground if you had one less kid, according to the, hmm. according to the popular calculations. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> the more I dug into it, the more I realized that the way I had been taught to think about reproduction and climate change is um, misleading in a lot of different levels. Interesting. So, I mean, I was expecting you to say kind of the opposite, like, yeah, it's not responsible to bring a child, <laughs> you know, like that's, yeah. but I, what I'm hearing is that maybe surprise, surprise, it's more complicated than that. And that you, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here. I mean, what kind of a conclusion did you draw about, I think, what is a very deeply philosophic issue? I mean, first of all, that like, it's not responsible to have a child. I just want to call that off out as like, I felt that. Uh -huh. And that is a way that we've been taught to think because of fossil fuel corporations. Right. So like, some part of me, as I learned more about this was like, oh, they, they have stepped into this deeply personal, deeply philosophical conversation that I should be having with myself, with my spouse, with my community and they are impacting it. And so I kind of like wanted to hand them their eviction papers. It was like, yeah, yeah no, you're not, you're not actually invited to that conversation. Um, I don't believe that those decisions should be decisions that the state is making, decisions that fossil fuel corporations are making. I think they should be spiritual decisions. I think they're decisions that we have to make you know, as fully with our whole souls, minds, beings as possible. And I want, and I understand that there are so many different factors that impinge upon the decisions that one might make there, be they financial, be they environmental, be they geographic. There's so many different ways in which we're not making those decisions um, without external uh, forces at play. I did choose to have a child mm. and um, I don't mean my decision to be what other people should should or shouldn't do. But um, I think, you know, you can choose to have a child and in that choosing commit to building the kind of world you want your child to live in. And I think, you know, the idea that the that the future stability of civilization or the place where the child lives might be in question like that's a that's that sensation is not actually a new one for indigenous inhabitants of 
of the Americas. They've been living through, you know, fundamental, deeply, deeply catastrophic at times environmental change for five centuries. And they've been making these decisions, decisions around reproduction in that kind of environment for a really long time. You can say the same of black and brown women in this country. Like the idea that our children are should or or guaranteed a kind of like safe harbor in the future i think is a feeling and a sensation most familiar for middle class and upper middle class whites then Mm. (laughs) and so to lose some of that is perhaps what's disorienting right now but i take a lot of um my cues in terms of thinking about what does reproduction mean um from folks who've lived in 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 and through moments where it's a more complicated set of decisions. Yeah. Can you, can you go a little further into that? I I think it's a really important point that, that, you know, indigenous um, societies or those that have, you know, just had lived in in much more difficult circumstances than middle-class white people. I mean, that they have continued to reproduce. They have continued to bring children into the world. I mean, say more about why you found that so important to talk about. I mean, I find it really important to talk about because you also see then, and I'm a little like reticent to just like (laughs) kind of put all folks from this category into this kind of reaction. But um, I'm thinking in particular, like there's a lot of really powerful movements that arise in the 70s, 80s and 90s where you have black women saying like, I'm choosing to have a child and I am also choosing to be active in my community, a community leader to fight for justice um, in the place where that child is going to, you know, live their lives. Mm. And so it's for me been helped me to move from anxiety towards action and to look at other people who have made similar decisions and to say like, okay, you know, it's, if I'm going to wish a child into this world, then I have to wish this world upon that child. So I better be part of the change I want to see. Certainly. I mean, you hear this among parents that, that when one has a child in the world, there's a certain immediacy to the experience. Like you, you are perhaps engaging with the systems on a much more direct level. And that's, I think what I'm hearing you say as well. Yeah, I'm nodding along. Absolutely. I think that's true. Um, I don't think you have to be a parent exactly. to do that, but I think that it can work out that way. Tell me about your life now with a child. I mean, how how have you felt becoming the mother, becoming, you know, the person who you wondered if you would become on this Antarctic <laughs> journey? Like what what's life like now for you? Oh gosh. Um incredibly rich. <laughs> I I do uh I wouldn't change my decision, not for a single second. But something that's been kind of fun and fascinating to me is, you know, I've tried to be very purposeful in the language that I use when I speak about nature with my son. Um, So, you know, I think there's some part of me that would be inclined. We live next to this gigantic, beautiful beech tree and there's some part of me that's inclined to be like, Nico, go greet the beech tree. Like we're coming home, give the beech tree a hug. And I try to make sure that the beech tree is also like an actor in my sentences. So, you know, I might say like, 
the beech tree is greeting you or it's welcoming you home. Um, look at its leaves shimmering, you know, and greeting. And I'm doing that work very kind of like purposely and intentionally. And it's fun to realize that recognizing that kind of aliveness in the more than human world can feel a bit like labor intensive and a little bit kind of like clunky for me. And I think my son kind of gets it. <laughs> yeah, I think he's like, oh, of course the trees are alive and the bay is alive. Um, and so I'll be curious as he gets older, if it seems like some of that starts to disappear and how I might continue to support his um, more lively egalitarian worldview for as long as humanly possible. I think it's something that we teach kids away from as a port as opposed to support. Yes. And that's been interesting to watch up close. Well, it's been such a pleasure to be joined by Elizabeth Rush, writer, Pulitzer Prize finalist and author of The Quickening. Thank you so much for just spending some time with us on KCRW and telling us about this incredible journey. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. That's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. And now we'd like to pose a question to you. How do you feel about bringing more children into the world, knowing that we live in this era of climate change? Chime in on our Facebook group. You can find a link to that at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. You can also connect with me directly. I'm on Instagram at Jonathan W. Bastion, and there you'll find weekly videos and a whole lot of other good stuff to keep you connected to Life Examined throughout the week. As always, thanks again for joining us, and we'll catch you next week right here on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastion. Take care, and we'll see you soon.